0: Let's pray. Father, tonight we are your people, and, and as the song says, you are the prize, God. We are so grateful that we get you undeservedly, not on any merit of our own, but you, through Christ, have allowed us to be in relationship with you. And tonight, We have this opportunity to be together and to worship, to sing, to get into your word and to be together. And we're so grateful that as your word says that you're here in our midst and we um, don't understand it, but we are grateful for it tonight. Use your word tonight to illuminate something to us. Reveal more about who you are to us tonight in your word so that we can know you better. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated tonight. Children, you are dismissed with Miss, Mrs. Maisie. She's heading to the back. Have a great time. Well, again, I want to welcome you to Renovation Church. I see some new faces. I also notice that it is one of those weeks in August where it is difficult to be here. And uh, everybody's enjoying what, you know, I felt a little cooler today, and I know it's August, but I began to have that haunting thought that summer is coming to a close. And uh, I hate to even say it, I notice they're setting stuff up at the fair, which always bothers me. It's kind of that cue, right? Back to school stuff, we're buying backpacks, so here we are. It went by fast. Um, We have been spending the last several weeks in this series um, going through the book of Colossians called Christ Above All. And today is our final day in the book of Colossians. So I don't know if that warrants a cheer. um, But we have we have gone through the book of Colossians and we're in the last passage in chapter four. If you have your Bibles with you, it's going to be chapter four, verses seven through eighteen. And we're going to take a moment and just kind of recap what we've talked about a little bit. We're going to come into the close of chapter four and the close of this letter that Paul is writing to this church as he's in prison in Rome with a group of dudes that he's been hanging out with who have been serving with him, who are helping him out, and he's going to give them props. I mean, he's going to commend them, and you're going to see in the close of this book and in the close of this chapter that Paul is, in essence, endorsing some guys, some fellows that that have been with him, that have been serving with him, and they're going to carry this letter along with another couple of letters out to these churches that Paul has been a part of starting, and he wants to encourage them, and he wants to build them up. That's what we're going to see at the close of this letter. And you know, when I first read the passage, I thought, "Great, I got a list of names to preach on." You know, that's always the passage you want, right? <laughs> and uh, but but as I looked through it, I, I God began to speak to me. I believe through His Word, as He does to all of us. It is the Word of God, and and there's some things here that I think are important for us to to take a look at. There's some challenges that I've felt as I've read through it that maybe I I pray that God can help me communicate tonight to each of you and we can walk through this together. Is everybody okay with that? So let's read the passage together and then we'll pray. Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 through 18 and I'm going to butcher some of these names because I should have looked up the phonetical on some of them and spelled it out but I didn't. Tychicus, that's totally not right, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristide, whatever, my fellow prisoner greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning In all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Achippus, a see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we just ask tonight that you would speak through your word, that you would use me to communicate what you've revealed to us through your scripture. We, we trust you tonight. We see these faithful men, those who have been called by Paul's beloved brothers, faithful ministers. We ask that you would challenge us tonight in that, that you would do something in our hearts that changes us. the thing that only you can do is change our heart. We trust you tonight in Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. So here we are at the end of Colossians, and for those of you who don't know um, this, this church that we have here is a church that was started from another church we started called Missio Church, which meets downtown. And a group of guys got together a while ago, I can't remember how many years, um, me and Jordan and Jim and eventually Bernie and Mike and some others got together and, and we believed that God had called us to be a part of, of establishing a church and, and then as we saw God move downtown in the city of Syracuse and a church be established there, we began to get together out in Baldwinsville, in Liverpool, and see people gather there, and we believe God wanted us to do something out in this area as well. And so, um, Renovation Church was born actually two years ago today, right, Mike? This is our second year anniversary? This will be our first year anniversary. Our first year anniversary. Okay, so I wasn't too far off. So this is our first year anniversary since we've officially planted, but it's our second year anniversary since we started getting together as a church out in the suburbs of Beeville, Liverpool, Clay, and that's a pretty good, good deal, right? Um, here we are two years old or a year old, however you measure it, and, and we have seen God's faithfulness as we have just been committed to this mission, that we believe God's called us to. This mission of seeing every man, woman, and child having a repeated opportunity to hear the gospel, to see the gospel. And, and we believe that the gospel becomes accessible as God's people go out to where they live, where they work, where they hang out, and, and just live lives that are faithful. And and as the gospel grows in us, we get to go out and and God, what he primarily does, he does through his people as we go out into these areas. That's why we decided to plant churches like this way. Instead of growing a church this way, we decided as people gather so that the gospel is accessible to people all over the place, we're going to plant churches and spread out and see the gospel proclaimed in the lives of his people in particular geographies, in particular locations, and that's been our mission, and that's been what we've been committed to doing, and we've seen God do what only he does. The, the reason he uses us and how he uses his people is beyond me, but he does, and as we're as we respond to the gospel in our own hearts and go and live on mission with him, he seems to do what only he can do, and that's draw people to himself and transform people's lives through his gospel, amen? And so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years, and it's, it's exciting, and we're having a great time, but it, it takes some, some sacrifice and some commitment, you know? It's, it's different to be a part of a church plant, isn't it? Those of you who've been with us? For a while, I mean, it's one thing to bring your family to the big church down the street where, you know, like every children's classroom looks like extreme makeover, home edition, right, and the kids are like, this is amazing, and they scan their arms or something, and they go in, and everything's accessible to you, and you have, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to be a part of something like this, but it, the value you gain from it, how exciting it's been to see people feel called to be a part of bringing the gospel to this area in a new way and to partner with churches like North Central who just say, you know, use our building. Have your church in our church because we stand on the gospel too. To be in partnership with churches all over this area has been incredibly exciting. Holding these things with our hands open and just saying, God, people are your people. We we stand on the gospel and we want to see people come to know Jesus. And that's what this has been about. Um, I think you see here in the book of Colossians as we've been reviewing it and as we've been going through it, you see Paul sending this letter back to a church that's been planted probably by Epaphras and, and he is encouraging them and he's warning them against false teachers, right? And we've been walking through that. Because he talks to them about the fact that they've come to know Jesus and the gospel has has done something in their life and they've come face to face with the grace of God and they've been transformed. And then something has been happening in the life of this church where the culture from around where they live has began to seep into the church. And he writes this letter and he's sending it out in the hands of these men who he just talked about to read this letter aloud in the churches to warn them against false teachers, to remind them of the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of who Jesus is and what he's done in their lives and what the gospel's all about. What's happened as we've walked through the book of Colossians is in the culture, this what, what it was probably amounted to a Jewish mysticism that was seeped into the culture outside of the church began to seep in as they began to add things to the gospel. Maybe this worship of angels and looking to angels instead of Jesus for things and, and living, up into, to living up to some prior Jewish law and Jewish code and they begin to add those things to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul in this letter to the Colossus church is saying, wait a minute, it's not about those things that you do, it's about what Jesus has done. And he's reminding them of the gospel. And he's sending that out, this letter that he's written, that we've walked through in the hands of these men to go back and be faithful servants. What do we see about these guys as he talks about them in verses 7 through 18? I'm just going to list some of the qualities that Paul, as he endorses these men, this is what he says about them in this letter, is they're going to take this letter with them. They're beloved brothers, faithful ministers, servants of the Lord, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He says particularly about Epaphras that he's been struggling on their behalf in prayer so that they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He talks about Epaphras as a man who has worked hard for them, He wants them to see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. He he wants, as they hear of this letter and as it's read to them, that they're able to fulfill the full potential of the ministry that the Lord has called them to and that they're not sidetracked or derailed by false teaching and by this thing that's seeping into the church. And he wants them to remember his chains, to pray for him, to remember that he's imprisoned in Rome. These are some remarkable qualities as he endorses these men. You see a bunch of different dudes. You see, um, I'm not going to list them, but you see some guys, Tychicus, something like that. He was was mentioned in the book of Acts. The Greek who was saved. You see Onesimus, who was a bondservant, probably to Philemon. This was a man who had um, probably ripped Philemon off and taken off away from him as his bondservant and had fled to Rome and, and somehow he encounters Paul and he comes to know Jesus. And as you see, as you ro- read the book of Philemon, he, he says, um, please accept Onesimus back to you, not just as a bondservant now, but as a brother, as someone who is now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like you, a brother where you would have this disparity in terms of your function, in terms of your roles in this culture as a master and a bondservant, now because of Jesus, he's going to come back to you and I want you to receive him as a brother. So he's sending Onesimus out, this man who had fled from his master, who has now come back to know Jesus. And he's carrying with him not only the letter to Colossians, but the letter of Philemon. Some of these qualities as he lists them, I believe, challenge us and challenge me. As What does it mean to be an authentic Christian, right? Have you ever asked yourself that? As I look at this list of qualities, as I look at these men who have come together on mission with God, on mission with Paul, who have now decided that as Christians, their lives are about the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now they're committed and they're faithful and they're beloved faithful ministers of the gospel. What what has changed in their life and what has caused them to be authentic Christians that Paul's endorsing and sending out as a part of his team and a part of his ministry? And I think it's appropriate for us to take a look at this as a church plant, right? We've gathered together as a body of Christ We've gathered together, some of us, maybe who have already committed our lives to Jesus and decided we're on mission with God and our lives are different now. Maybe some people are still thinking about it. Maybe some are still deciding. But as we look at whether or not you're already a Christian or whether or not you haven't really decided if you're a Christian yet, I think it's worth exploration either way to think through what does it mean to be authentic Christians, right? Right? I mean, if you haven't decided to be a Christian yet, you should explore what it means to to authentically be a Christian before you decide not to be or to be. And if you're a Christian, if you believe that you've identified with Christ and you want to be endorsed as if one of these men who are beloved faithful ministers of the gospel, what does that mean? What does it mean to have authentic faith in Jesus, to be a beloved brother, to be a, a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? These are questions I began to ask myself as I looked at this passage. I believe it rises from this passage to ask ourselves as a team, as a leadership team, and as, a, as elders here at, at Renovation Church, and as those also who have come to be a part of it, what, what are we doing? As, as Paul is writing a letter that's coming head-on with the culture that the Colossian Church is a part of, and he's challenging the culture, and he's warning them and challenging them to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to not let the, the culture around them seep in and bend what Jesus has done in their life, I think we too need to take a, a similar look at our Christianity the and authentic, the authenticness of it. It's not a word, but you know what I mean. Authenticity? That would have been better. There we go. And I'm a lawyer. That's what we make up words. A preacher and a lawyer. My gosh. So I think it's worthwhile for us to do that. I think it should be explored. I think we should be a little introspective as we look at these men and who God has said that they are through his word. As these men have been faithful to be a part of this team and of this ministry as Paul has sent them out they now are immortalized in the, in the word of God as men that are beloved brothers and faithful ministers. And, and there's something about what they've done, the quality of their lives, that Paul would endorse them to take this letter and to read it aloud and to, and, to, and to labor with Paul as a part of his team in this time period as the church is being birthed. And as you read through the book of Acts and mirror it to this time period, you see God doing amazing things all over the world through these men. He wants to see that these people fulfill the ministry that they've received from the Lord. He wants to see them live authentic, genuine lives. God wants us to realize also who we are in Christ and allow the same type of devotion that these men had to translate in our lives into action. Amen? So as we look at the book of Colossians, we see a reminder of who Jesus is. And what are the implications of that on our life? And how does us finding our identity in the supremacy of Christ translate into a devotion in our lives that calls us to action, right? I think what we see in our culture as it seeps into the church is we see people identify themselves with Christ but maybe not really live a life of devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes them to identify with him in everything that they do, Christ is supreme, and then in turn live a life of action devoted to him. Wouldn't you say that's true? I talk to people every day who I live among, whether it be in my job or whether it be friends in the neighborhood, who would identify themselves as Christian who would say, yes, I I believe in God, or yes, we go to church, or yes, we're Catholic, or we're Protestant, or we're Methodist. But this idea of being a devoted brother, a beloved brother and a devoted minister of the gospel, this life change that calls somebody to action hasn't quite happened yet. I believe we've been able in our culture, as it seeped into the church, to make that distinction. I think we've been able as a culture and as secular humanism and our day has seeped into what people believe in the way that they live, they've been able to just say, well, identify with Christianity, but that's you identify with that and all roads lead to the same place and and everybody's going to be okay and what you believe is what you believe and what I believe is what I believe and in the name of tolerance, everybody's right. Have you ever heard that in our culture today? I want to take a moment and talk about tolerance. Because I believe the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of Christianity should cause us to be the most tolerant people in the world. Really, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, the understanding of our own sinfulness and our need for grace in the rescue of Jesus in our own personal lives should cause us to love our brothers regardless of what they believe or the way they behave or or who they identify with. But tolerance doesn't also mean that everybody's right. That's just intellectually inconsistent, isn't it? That doesn't make, that, that makes less sense that everybody's right than it does, I believe that this is true. Tim Keller would say that as I've been reading Reason for God, in Reason for God, Tim Keller said, I'm going to paraphrase it, I'm not going to quote him exactly, that that if you believe, if you believe exclusive claims are intolerant, and, and some people's problem with Christianity is that it makes exclusive claims, right? I make exclusive claims. Jesus, and I'm going to read in Matthew 7, makes exclusive claims about who he is and the way to the Father. And if you believe exclusive claims are somehow intolerant or somehow wrong, you yourself are making an exclusive claim and doing the very thing you're criticizing someone else of. I make the exclusive claim that everybody's right and that all roads lead up the same hill to the same God and it doesn't matter what you believe, then I'm making an exclusive claim that my view of religion is superior to yours because you, as a Christian, believe that Jesus is the way to God. does not it? It's not intellectually consistent. It's our secular humanist culture seeping into the church because you go anywhere else in the world, they have no problem with exclusive claims. If you, as a relativist or as a secular humanist, say that I believe everybody's right and that your view of religion that makes an exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way is wrong or that you as a Muslim are wrong and, and to say that only your way is right and all roads lead to the same place, then you're making an exclusive claim that your view on religion Or religiosity is superior to somebody else's. You're making an exclusive claim too. It's intellectually inconsistent to say exclusive claims are intolerant. They're not intolerant. What's intolerant is treating people who believe something differently poorly. See, the definition of civilization is to be polite, it's to be civil. And those of us who have been impacted by the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ should love people more than anyone else, should recognize the depths of our own sin more than anybody else and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and we should love people regardless of what they believe. But we don't have to not believe what we believe. We don't have to say everybody else is, is true. That's not tolerance. That's intellectual suicide. It doesn't make any sense. What are the dangers of the culture that's seeping into the church here today where we live, similar to what Paul's warning them against in the book of Colossians? And how do we examine ourselves? What is authentic Christianity for us? I want to read Matthew 7 because Jesus says some tough things here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets. See, he dresses this thing that Paul's addressing in Colossians: "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So here's Jesus addressing this issue of authenticity, this issue of authentic Christianity. As we see Paul's endorse these men and warn the Colossian church, and as they're carrying this letter out uh, to these people where the culture's been seeping into their church to remind them of what it means to be an authentic Christian, here we see Jesus hitting his culture head on, right? Particularly our culture with this idea that all roads lead to the same place, right? Jesus is very specific, isn't he? He says, no, no. All roads don't lead to the same place. There's two roads. There's one that leads to one place and one that leads to another. Very clear. Very tough sayings of Jesus here. Jesus demonstrates and is clear about the fact that authentic Christians are on a narrow road that is difficult and that everybody else is on a wide road that's a little bit easier and he's very particular about these two roads. Then we see this idea of the two houses. And I think it's important to take a look at. As we, as we examine in ourselves our authenticity, as we examine in ourselves where are we? Are we those who give an intellectual salute in our lives to the idea that Jesus is great and I identify with Christianity? Or are we those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And and I guess I still haven't answered that question. As Paul has endorsed these men, I still haven't answered that question, what is authentic Christianity? What does it mean to be those who are authentically Christian? We see these two houses. Both houses look the same. Right? And I think you see in the context of this passage in Matthew 7 that these houses really have to do with the works of these men, the moral work of these men, the hard work of these men, because you, you, you look back just prior to him giving this, this parable of the houses, and he's talking about those who say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do great works in your name? Didn't we do awesome stuff, Jesus? And as you notice, he didn't say, depart from me. He says, I never knew you. He didn't say, I never knew of you. He knows who they are, but I never knew you. I never knew you relationally. But we did great works. And you see these two houses built. They both look the same. They they really in this metaphor or in this paradigm, they they relate to the works of these men, these beautiful works, these moral works, but one is built on the rock, which is Jesus, and the other is built on itself. Really, the moral works or the work of this house is its own foundation. They're relying on what they did. They're relying on how they behaved. They're relying on how they acted. How many of you ever hear that? Still in the scope of Christendom. Well, I do good things. I'm a good person. Don't I work hard? I'm really nice to people. And they're relying on their own works as its own foundation. And we see great was the fall. What's the difference between the person who built this house on the sand and the person who built this house on the rock? The person who built their house on the rock isn't relying on the work of the building of the house. They're not relying on the beauty of the house. They're not relying on on their moral goodness and all the great things they did for Jesus. The person who built this house on the rock is relying completely on Jesus himself. That person is able to come to God and say, I have nothing to offer. I'm utterly sinful. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough good things. I need you. I need Jesus. I need complete reliance on him, his supremacy, the gospel, the fact that he's paid for me, that he did it all and I have nothing to add to it. My good works are in response to it because of what he's already done, out of gratefulness for what he's done for me. My house is built on the rock because I'm in complete, consistent reliance and repentance on him. Please forgive me. That's the authenticity of a Christian. His house is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And that realization of who Jesus is as revealed in the book of Colossians, so impacts the life of a believer that they become so reliant on Jesus for everything. It responds. It automatically responds in a life devoted to being a beloved minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only response to the gospel is to say, take my life and do what you want with it. Amen? You see this in Saul, remember? As Saul was ordered by God in the Old Testament, In the book of Samuel to to destroy the all the livestock of the Amalekites. I don't know if you remember this story. They take over the Amalekites, and God says to Saul, destroy the livestock of the Amalekites. And and Saul, of course, looks at this beautiful livestock and he's like, Why? (laughs) Why would I do that? And so he keeps it for himself and he disobeys God. And Samuel comes to him. I love this. When Samuel comes to Saul in this in this passage, and Samuel's like, What are you doing? God told you to destroy all the livestock of the Amalekites. Why did you keep it for yourself? And Samuel says, "Well, I thought it would be nice to sacrifice the most beloved animals to God. I wanted to use these animals as a sacrifice as worship to God. And what did Samuel say to Saul? Obedience. God desires obedience more than he desires sacrifice. What Samuel said to Saul was, Saul, you fool. God didn't want the sheep. He wanted you. He wanted your heart. He wanted you to rely on him. He wanted your obedience. Didn't matter if it didn't make sense to you. What he was asking of you was your heart. He wanted you to do what he asked you to do. That's what what God is getting at with us today as we sit here in the youth room of another church on a Sunday night, as we examine ourselves As we come to the close of this incredible book where we've been reminded of the supremacy of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it really means to follow Jesus, we've been reminded to not get distracted and not get swayed by the culture seeping in, and and we've been reminded in this particular passage of these amazing faithful men who have come together in this first century to see the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ spread across the world because of their devotion to God. And I guess what I've seen rise out of this passage tonight as we gather together is can we examine ourselves and ask ourselves, where are we in terms of our our authenticity as a Christian? Are we devoted brothers? Are we beloved ministers of the gospel? Are we those who just as our culture would say, give an intellectual salute to one of the ways to get to God, are we those who desperately believe and rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's the only way to God and we need him and we're building our house on that rock of Jesus because there's nothing I can do to save myself. I am in complete reliance on him and because I'm so grateful for what he's done for me, because he loved me when I wasn't even looking for him, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to serving him. Not to earn his favor because he's already given it to me I can't add to it but to live a life of worship that honors God and sees other people all over this area hear about how amazing Jesus is hear about this gospel that can transform their lives not just save their marriages and do something in the lives of their children which it can but save them for eternity so they get to be in the presence of God forever amen Let's pray. Jesus, you are a good God. We are inspired by these men. We're inspired by how you transform their lives. We are inspired by the way that you use them to hold the church accountable to a culture that wanted to transform and seep in and and distort the good news of the gospel. And we ask tonight that you would not allow our view of who you are and what you've done for us be distorted. We ask that through your word you would continue to reveal to us how incredible you are, how amazing your gospel is. Tonight we, maybe some for the first time, others maybe for the millionth time, we again recognize our desperate need for you. We come to that place where we recognize we rely 100% on you, the supremacy of Christ, who you are, what you've done. God, I pray tonight that you would move in the hearts of each one of us as we closely examine our own authenticity and our own reliance, our own need for grace tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody said.